The Gist is brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. Buy any five bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free and receive free shipping. Just go to chwine.com and enter the promo code GIST at checkout. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 12th, 2016. I'm Mike Pesca from Slate. It's The Gist. I know that's not the usual order, but trust this humble reporter. If I ignored Limerick Day, you'd be pissed. So National Limerick Day just may stick. Though when I saw it on Twitter, I said, am I thick? I haven't checked for a while. Aren't limericks from the Emerald Isle? Or is it too hard to rhyme in Gaelic? In the spiel today, Donald meets with Paul Ryan as Trump tries to achieve GOP buy-in. But if Ryan continues to fret, Trump needs a new epithet. He's already said Ted Cruz was lying. But first, for my ultimate trick, at the risk of being impolitic, we ask, can we blame this Trump mess on the popular press? I debate with my old friend, Folkenflick. So when assessing the stature of Donald Trump as, well, 6'3 and short-fingered. No, as the presumptive Republican nominee, you got to ask, who's to credit, who's to blame? Clearly, he tapped into something among Republican voters, but what about the media? How could you not blame the media? So when it comes time to blame the media, I talk to the fairest-minded person I know, David Folkenflick, covers the media for National Public Radio. He has argued that uh, the media failed. Well, that was my takeaway from his article, how the media failed in covering Donald Trump. Hey, David. (laughs) Hey, Mike. (laughs) I don't know if I'm uh, being reductive there. There, but so I would so say the reductive. best point the best point that you make in how the media failed is especially with cable news, extra coverage to Trump that his rivals didn't get and lack of scrutiny. In this piece, I'm taking on the question, did the media create Trump? And it didn't. He's a self-creation. He uses the media. He manipulates it. He pl- presses, you know, he, he's like a master organist at, at, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. He knows how to press all the pedals exactly so. It's it's largely intuitive, clearly, and he's really good at it. And yeah, he has a lot of negatives because his persona is in some ways uh, based on a kind of uh, bombast, a, a negative energy, if you will. I don't think it's the press's role, particularly not that, that element of the press that sees itself as trying to be an honest broker and not as some sort of uh, ideological argument maker. It's not its role to say, uh, to stop, this must not pass. Mm-hmm. What its role is to do is to serve. And right. I think that that the press did treat it as a spectacle and a phenomenon. And I think it also reacted to the, the impulse that you mentioned on Twitter, which is in some ways it would be a shareholder malfeasance. <laughs> yeah. You know, not to, but that's, uh, not to respond to that. But discredit. Yes. If, if Jeff Zucker is leaving those $200,000 ads on the table, not only is it a, a question of greed as part of a multinational corporation, he's not doing his job literally. Sure. But... It also doesn't give credit to the fact that media organizations, while often acting impulsively or uh, in in some sort of binary form, are capable of being sophisticated institutions. But they are capable of treating him as a phenomenon and at the same time giving that journalistic scrutiny, at the same time really taking a look at what kind of business he is, whether he's a Potemkin billionaire and that fortune isn't there. All the facts that you presented to me are stuff that I knew and that you knew because someone in the media – scrutinized it. I knew about Trump University and I knew about uh, the the bankruptcies. In fact, that came up in the earliest debate. So this was all out there. I don't know how much emphasis that they could do 
compared to other candidates. So I go back to 2012. This is what I think was happening. It's, it's similar to 2012, where political scientists have actually described this phenomenon of rise, scrutiny, deflation. There were all these candidates who were, for some reason, re- leading in the polls, and then there'd be some scrutiny, some media scrutiny, enabled maybe by other campaigns, but largely media scrutiny, and then the candidates would deflate. So Herman Cain went through that, and Michelle Bachman went through that, and I think with Trump, People really thought that it would be like, well, he's leading because of name recognition and we'll give him scrutiny. And he never went down. And he quickly went. And after you scrutinized one thing, he went on to another. And then you'd scrutinize that thing and he'd went on to another. And he was playing, he was running circles around the media in a way they'd never seen before, maybe in a way that they were ill suited for. But what are they supposed to do? They covered him like they did every other candidate. Totally. No one, they covered him like every other candidate in the 2012 cycle who deflated and. No one criticized them for undercovering Herman Cain or Michelle Bachman. Well, Herman Cain, we actually learned a fair amount in the course of that campaign about, and we knew almost nothing about the guy before mm-hmm. he emerged, right? And you're right. Look, Trump comes to us and we feel we have a body of knowledge about him yeah, because he's been in the tabloids for so many years, because he's been a figure made fun of in The Simpsons and Family Guy and other places, because I'm sure he's been in Mad Magazine. And he's just, he's a figure of satire and of self-satire. And he plays a version of himself on Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice and millions more people learn him in that thing. He shows up uh, for the the Miss Universe, uh, Miss America. Uh, I think it's America, not USA. Well, he'll sue you if you get it wrong either way. Yeah. We've got insurance for that sort of thing. So he's familiar to America in a bunch of roles, but all of them are as a showman. Herman Cain was not leading in the polls for five months. Right. Herman Cain was leading in the polls for about eight days. But as soon as scrutiny was paid, he deflated. Right. I mean, I think of those no, 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 early but, debates with Trump, Megyn Kelly, the reason that all became a thing is Megyn Kelly went after him pretty hard with the quotes. That's called scrutiny being paid. And I think everyone in the media thought, wow, once we saw this reaction, he's going to go away. And he never did. Well, people, listen, there were a number of points at which people thought, he, people thought he'd go away after that one. People thought he'd go away after he called John McCain not truly a war hero because among, yeah, I mm-hmm. thought that was a shocking and appalling. Yeah. And you think among Republicans, take very seriously military issues. They yeah. didn't seem to harm him among at least a good 35, 40% of the of uh, Republican primary voters. When he made fun of a New York Times reporter with a degenerative neurological disease, yeah. you know, and, and put up some sort of, uh, uh, you know, as though he were himself somehow disabled uh, to mock the man, you'd think that was just beyond the pale. Yeah, but, no, just, but, all, it but my but, point is all of these things were well covered. They weren't under scrutiny. Right, but those things aren't really, those things are actually important because I think they show his mindset. But those things are things playing out right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Those are things the political press knows how to do, right? If you look at uh, what Trump did in that first, I think it was in August, uh, that first debate with Megyn Kelly and actually Brett Bayer and Chris Wallace, he was snippy with them too, but definitely yeah. Megyn Kelly made an issue of it. He went after he, Megyn Kelly. Absolutely. Chris Wallace asked her just as hard a question, him just as hard a questions as Didn't Kelly do it. Did. Yeah. Right. He made that debate. And remember, that was a time there were, I think, 17 uh, so-called major Republican candidates running. He made that debate about him and Fox. And so essentially, it was as though everybody else was in a, sl- sl- a quiet room, and it was just him and her and them. And in its way, it was a brilliant rhetorical move. He made the debate about him against Fox and not about him and the other nine people on stage. I think we have allowed Trump to define this as a spectacle. It is a spectacle. But it's also a guy who's now the 
all but assured nominee of yeah. one of the two most important parties in this country. And I think that we know who we think he – we think we know who he is, and I think we know who we think he is, but I don't think we know all that that means underneath. I don't think we know what it looks like when you lift up the rock yeah. and see all all the things, you know, wriggling underneath what that looks but like. But who's the we? The 63 percent who have a negative opinion of him or the 10 million who voted for them in the election, in the, in the primaries? I mean, if the general election comes and he gets trounced, will we then say – well, the media did its job in giving him the scrutiny, or will it just be that a different audience reacted to that massive amount of information, these fact-check columns that rate him hundreds of times, hundreds of statements in PolitiFact and the Washington Post just going over all of his statements? Will it be that one group, one constituency, Republican voters chose not to care, but another constituency, the general electorate, perhaps in the future, we could say, well, they did choose to care. I'm not sure 100% if those two choices were uh, divergent <laughs> that, that, that you offered there, but let me put it this way. Well, if it, I said it wrong, I mean, will it be the case that one, one audience, the people who vote in the Republican primaries, when given the information, chose not to attend to it? And another audience, the voters in the general election, will have chosen to attend to it. And it's not really the media's fault. It's how much people pay attention to it. Well, I think a lot will depend on how the media does for the next so many months before early November, right? So, you know, I don't know what the media's uh, influence will be for the general stretch, which is sort of starting now, in effect. What I can say is that I think it's entirely possible that the general electorate will decide, we don't like this guy. We don't want the spectacle. They may just decide that on its own terms. They may say, you know, he's he's this cartoon character. If Trump loses significantly, then a majority of the electorate will have decided we don't want this guy who we think we know. We don't want the character. But it's not, you know, it's not that the media needs to come up with a result. You know, you have uh, – you can have a soap opera figure and cover that soap opera figure as a spectacle and also cover that soap opera figure as a serious figure. And the electorate can reject on – either element, and that's the electorate's decision. But I think that the media, if it has a role to play, needs to make sure it's doing sufficiently. And then the readership and the viewership and the listenership can decide what it wants to do with that information. I don't think it's sufficient to say, well, he lost, if that's what you think the right outcome should be, and many people do, say he lost and therefore we must have done okay. But at the same time, I get the sense, you argue this very carefully, but I get the sense that so many are saying, well, he won, Whose fault is it? And how could you not blame the people? It seems insane that he won. And, so and how it does. Is it, yes. How is it that he won? It must be the fault of the gatekeepers to let this guy through the gate. And I think people want to vote how people want to vote. And there's plenty of evidence that p- much scrutiny was paid that so, that he rates, you know, whatever it is, 12 of his state, 12 out of 100 statements rate is true or partly true in the, by the fact check organizations. And I think, you know, so much, you know, in a very minor way. Look at the Ben Smith column uh, last week in BuzzFeed uh, in which he cites all kinds of things that repeatedly not only do live interviewers but newspapers of record like the Washington Post and the New York Times let go by his claim debunked by BuzzFeed and others that he supported the invasion of Iraq in 2003 by George W. Bush. You know, a series of things in which he claims one way and that actually is a good point. another. That, that is you know, an excellent that's, point. I think you know, and that that's, is that's true. Not just, that's not just live, the failings of live journalism, which is right. tougher. It's in print and online and sustained, like not never, never even corrected. And there are a series of things where his bombast, his tweets, his offensiveness, people are like, he's got negatives because he offends people. And he said, the, the things that offend people... Are, First off, 
actually appeal to a certain segment of the electorate, certainly the primary electorate, because they like that other people who they think perhaps have been paid too much attention to in recent years have, have been, uh, you know, uh, irked, <laughs> shall yeah. we say. Uh, and the second thing is simply responding to the outrages misses, you know, much deeper implications, I think, of his record and his present and the implications of his future. Simply responding to the outrage of the moment allows him to divert attention. Marco Rubio was starting to get some attention, and I can't remember what it was, but he said some completely outrageous thing. And for three days, that's all anybody talked about. Mm -hmm. And it just killed Rubio's, uh, uh, you know, mini momentum in the moment. Now, that's fine. The electorate can decide they don't want anything to do with Marco Rubio. I don't really care. Yeah. What I'm saying is that the press is unable to – you have to cover what's playing out in front of you, and I think that's real. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those media critics who say you can r detach yourself from from public events. But I think you also have to have another team going in a different rhythm and a different current that's covering, you know, uh, much more sustaining uh, uh, threads of what's important about the figures who have risen to the top of attention. Okay. So I will, uh, I will concede a couple things. One, much of especially broadcast media did not do a great job in terms of thoroughly vetting him, doing deep dives, giving scrutiny to all his past because they never do and because that's sort of how our system is set up. Two, I have been covering politics not as long as you have, but for a little while. And in my time, there has never been a candidate who's lost who has said anything other than, well, we really didn't get the kind of press that we wanted. So losing— And, and by the way, usually yeah. the winners also. Yeah, well, the, the winners will say our message really got through despite the press. Despite the media, right. And I think that's what Trump would say too. And I think that, I think that you know, Brooke Gladstone wrote this book called The Influencing Machine, which is to say we, we, give the media, right, we give the media all this credit for influencing our decision, but really we do – it's really the other way around. The media reflects our decision, and I think that much more precisely describes the Trump phenomenon up to this point than what uh, – than, than a – Let's blame the media, which you're not exactly saying, I know, but that's a better description than it's – So my charge enabled. was just like, how did we do? Yeah, how did we do? And we fell short. Don't we usually? I think that – we f f Did we fall short in ways that were either unpredictable or different from the ways we But if you're falling short, short in the 2012 yeah. election, yeah. you know, you have two guys at that point, both men, uh, nominees who are at that point both pretty accomplished politicians and public figures and – there are ways in which the press fell short. There are ways in which the interviews fell short, ways in which the debate moderation might have fell short, ways in which enterprise coverage would have fallen short. But there was a lot of serious coverage and there was a lot of thoughtfulness and there's a lot of stuff behind the, the day's events, right? Mm -hmm. When we are in a moment of spectacle, when we have essentially an unpredictable, which I think is very key for live television, that's why they like him so much, but an unpredictable and at least in the last, call it, four or five decades, unprecedented candidate – we have to think harder. We have to work harder. So you think 2016, there'll be more shame within the media than there was in past elections? I don't like the word shame. I just think you just – I think there's going to be acknowledgement of the fact that that when the, the headiness of this dissipates, we're going to be pretty chagrined that we weren't able to say for ourselves what we thought some of the stories should be. Uh, I think that the, the campaigns define things, the candidates define things, and that's important. But I think in this case uh, – it, it got out of our control, at least in this primary season. Hey, we got some months left. Let's see how it goes. David Folkenflik covers the media for NPR. And let me say, I think you won this debate. However, you didn't change my mind at all. Is that possible? My message didn't get through, and I blame the media. <laughs> Thank you, David. You bet. 
Cameron Hughes is an actual guy who pronounces his name Hughes. Me, I say Cameron Hughes. And what Cameron Hughes does is he uses his knowledge of wine to give you a great drinking experience at an unbelievable price. Here's the story. All these vineyards in Sonoma and Napa Valley, they make great wine, but they don't always use it in every batch. Sometimes they mix a bunch and they have some leftover. It's really good wine. Well, Cameron knows where the leftover wine is. And he says, hey, can I take your wine and sell it to my customers for kind of pennies on the dollar that you would? And and they say, yeah, we're going to throw it out anyway. So what you get. And also, by the way, sometimes he just puts his label on a wine and that exact wine is on the shelf under the more expensive label. So what the how this redounds to you, the customer, is that you're drinking wines. You could drink wines that are rated like 92 and 93 by wine spectator and wine enthusiasts. And normally those are, you know, $155 bottles of wine. He sells that same kind of wine. He recently had three 90 plus Cabernets for a bottle. He's giving you a 40 to 80% discount just because he knows where the wine is and he kind of bypasses a lot of what you're paying for because a lot of what you're paying for with wine is branding and the label on the bottle. And here we have an offer to you. So they're already, like I said, 40 to 80% off great bottles of wine. If you buy any five, we'll give you a free bottle of Pinot Noir. It's a $25 value and we'll give you free shipping. So you buy any five bottles of wine, free bottle of Pinot Noir, and free shipping if you use the code just at checkout. Go to chwine.com, that's chwine.com, shop for any wine you want, pick your five bottles, pick more, but enter the code just at checkout, right? Got it? Just at checkout, and you'll get free Pinot Noir and free shipping. And now the spiel, Trump, Ryan, IRL. Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee, but to Paul Ryan and the Republican Speaker of the House's agenda, he's really not much more than the disruptive nominee. Fearing down-ticket fallout, but really more as the standard bearer of modern conservatism, Paul Ryan played coy with his endorsement of Trump. I'm not ready, he told CNN's Jake Tapper. Well, after playing coy, today the two played footsie. And Ryan intimated that it went pretty well. He's open to a second date, perhaps with a little more vetting and a little more petting. And we'll take it by it, he means the party, from there. I was very encouraged with what I heard from Donald Trump today. I do believe uh, that, that we are now planting the seeds to get ourselves unified, to bridge the gaps and differences. And so from here, we're gonna go deeper into the policy areas to see where that common ground is and how we can make sure that we are operating off these same core principles. And so, yes, I am. This is our first meeting. I was very encouraged with this meeting, Um, but this is a process. It takes a little time. You don't put it together in 45 minutes. Uh, So that is why um, we had, like I said, a very good start to uh, a process on how we unify. On the Republican side, Dan Quayle, Marco Rubio, and other ostensibly national Republicans behaved like yentas trying to push the two circling paramours together in a more forceful embrace. On the Democratic side, acting like so many haters on the Real Housewives shows, there was Harry Reid, the outgoing majority leader. Outgoing describes his job status, not his demeanor, by the way. Uh, Trump's policy positions are identical to the Republican Party platform. 
Nancy Pelosi, Reid's opposite number in the House, made a similar point. Some Republicans, including members of their leadership, have said they cannot support the vile rhetoric and radical proposals of the Republican front runner. Today, we have gathered to ask, since when? Since when have the House Republicans been so concerned about intolerant statements and discriminatory ideas? Are they right? Well, maybe narrowly, especially Pelosi, where House Republicans have been given to bits and moments of Trumpian frothing. You lie! And Florida Rep Bill Posey's bill, co-sponsored by 12 other Republicans, requiring future presidents to produce an original copy of their birth certificates. But have Republicans, meaning the Republican Party as a whole, have they enabled Trump? Are all the positions that Trump espouses to be found somewhere in the Republican Party? Not a dime's worth of difference, Nancy Pelosi says. Here's a quote from Democratic Minority Whip Steny Hoyer. The Republicans have created an environment in radicalism, fear, and exclusion. The presumptive nominee is the result of their work, and what they have sowed is what they are reaping. I think they're wrong. Not that there aren't elements that are as radical and wild-eyed as Trump within Republican circles, but that birther bill I mentioned, it went nowhere. And all the bluster about defaulting on debt that Trump actually proposed last week, the Republicans as a whole backed off that, as evidenced by the fact that the debt ceiling was eventually raised. On foreign policy, there is things like the the strain of respect for Putin. And you could see that in places like the American Conservative Magazine and hear it from Trump supporter Pat Buchanan. But it is far from the mainstream of their party. So is Trump's answer that women who have abortions should be punished, or his idea that families of terrorists should be killed, or the ban on Muslims from entering America. Trump has contradicted, not pivoted, contradicted himself on all those, but he said it, and the Republican Party as a whole does not say it. Some Republicans say things like that. Every one of those things, you'll find one or two Republicans who would sign on to them. But some Democrats are for zeroing out funding to Israel. That doesn't make it the position of the Democratic Party. I've heard the argument that all the ugliness of Trump is just the dog whistle being lowered an octave or two so that we can all hear it. The party exploits fears of gays or blacks or Latinos for electoral gain all the time. All Trump did, this argument goes, is he did so with abandon and without consequence among GOP voters. But I don't buy this argument. The last three Republican nominees, Mitt Romney, John McCain, and George W. Bush, all wanted a path to legalization. They all knew the importance of not taking so hard a line within the primary that they would repel Latino voters in the general. Now, you might be saying, wait, What about Mitt Romney saying self-deportation? Yes, he really did a number on himself with that one phrase. But but if you look at his policy positions, they were much more moderate than that. And by the way, self-deportation to the very pragmatic Mitt Romney, that's in his mind what would happen if the government started to do some deportations. He was trying to explain, well, we wouldn't have to deport 8 million of them. The, The writing on the wall would be red and most of our work would be done for us. There'd be some amount of self deportation. Still, of course, it did hurt him. But it's also true that party leaders, Reince Priebus, wrote this post-mortem, and he couldn't be more explicit about the risks of alienating Latinos. The party leadership wanted to get a deal done on immigration. 
Reince Priebus warned against the temptation of trading in the kind of tough anti-immigrant talk that appeals to Republican primary voters, but will damn you in the general. Now, it's true that playing to your base in either party holds some perils in the general election. But I know of no issue that the Democrats are so impassioned about as Republican voters are with immigration that would flat out doom a Dem. Why wouldn't it doom a Dem? Demographics. The base of the Democratic Party simply looks a lot more like the makeup of a general national electorate, and Donald Trump does not. This is not to say that any Democratic nominee would beat any Republican nominee, the personal qualities, specific policies, election strategy, that all comes into play. But it's a lot like I discussed with Folk and Flick in the media in the earlier segment. Yeah, CNN played too many minutes of Trump stump speeches, and there was no careful vetting of his past actions. There was more of a wider airing of the outrage of the day. And it's also true that within the Republican Party, yeah, Republicans have known that they could rely on racial boogeymen to gin up support, and it's really tempting for them to do so. But the blame is not with either institution. It is ultimately with the voters. In this democracy, the voters in the Republican Party knew what they wanted, and they got it. His name is Trump. The gist was produced by Andrea Salenzi, whose calm demeanor belies in her frenzy. She gave Mary Wilson this counsel. It will be your downfall unless you flow like the River Mackenzie. Steve Lichtai is Slate Podcast's EP, which he does for a moderate fee. Though his wage, divided by hours, does not touch Andy Bowers because chief content officers don't work for free. The gist asks you not to misconstrue the words that we offer in lieu of a Latinate motto announced with solemn vibrato, um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. Thanks for listening.